Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming to the Herd Mentality. Alive, it's, it's live broadcasting to you from outside Kentucky State Prison. Yes, she's been persecuted, outright humiliated. And, and for what do I hear you ask? Just for the crime of not doing the job she was elected to do. This is, oh, this is such a momentous occasion. It's, a, it's all right, Kim, here's a tissue. It's a, we're, we're all overjoyed. We're so thankful you're out. Yes, joining me here is right-wing religious nutbag, Kim Davis. Thank you all so much. You're welcome. I love you all so very much. That's beautiful. So much support. Can we hear it, please? Everyone, for everyone's favorite bigot, Kim Davis. Someone shout out something in the background, please. I just want to give God the glory. He is, his people have rallied, and you are a strong people. A big cheer for the martyr. We serve a living God. We do. Who knows exactly where each and every one of us is at. Any advice for owning my shirts? Just keep on pressing. What makes for a successful car tire? Don't let down. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. he is here. Thanks for coming on the show, Kim. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Okay, all you lunatics, can we hear it for Kim? Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Joining me from all corners of the globe, I have at Kai Matai. Welcome, sir. Good afternoon. Greetings. I also have at Godfrey World. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. And I have at Rachel Nannan-Brown. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? Couldn't be happier. We've finally got your microphone working. This is good news. Oh, I have maybe four or five mics in this apartment, and I'm using my phone. <laughs> it would have been uh, probably less of an interesting podcast if we had to read out exactly what you're typing into the Skype chat. But we're all here now. Happy <laughs> days. Now, Kai Matai, bring us up to speed on what you've been doing, because it's been quite some time since Ray Comfort defeated you at... Uh, in a debate and yeah well you've been traipsing all over the planet uh saving sloths in austria and uh was it was it sloths what's going on ah big issue of course at the moment is the elephant poaching so i've been mostly focused on that trips to kenya december last year as part of a world bank study trip in china as part of a, a society's and chinese government thing on reducing demand for ivory, and I'm going going off to play in Vienna with the UNODC on, on ivory as well, dispersed with that, playing with bears, hopefully, bear poaching in China also. But you're back in Ray Comfort's home territory in New Zealand, but 
We were discussing this off-air yeah. very briefly. There's a, a couple of memes going around on the internet, and the social internet warriors are keen to do whatever they can to help preserve the elephants by photoshopping their tusks pink. Is this a thing? No, no sadly not. Sadly not. problem with um, elephant tusks is, is that they are actually very, very solid bone. It's a dentine-type structure. It, it actually has a, has a grain to it, if you look closely, because it's filled with these microtubules that run up and down the length of it, and those are the, the growth point that the tooth, the tusk, actually grows out of. And that, that grain is, is what a skilled carver needs to work with. But the point is, it's, it's basically a solid tooth. Very heavy, but solid, and you can't dye them. And even if you could, the payoff in terms of reducing poaching there is, is pretty moot. Finding elephants is, is tricky enough. We're not actually quite sure how many elephants there are in Africa, because it turns out they're really hard to count. So Also quite a big place. Yeah, quite a big place. Uh, most of the elephants don't even live in reserves. And then, of course, you want to p- do anything with their teeth in order to race off, locate, tranquilize, do something with those teeth, the tusks, do it on enough of them to have an impact. There's rather a, an odd, odd use of resources when... We know certain things like cracking international smuggling rings or doing a lot more enforcement on the ground in key places going to have a bigger payoff. In Godfrey World, what are you up to of late? I actually took a kind of a long-needed break over my summer. I did take a trip with my family to London, which I enjoyed very much. My younger daughter has become quite an Anglophile from watching Doctor Who and other British shows, and so she was eager to go. She had never been. We took her to London and spent a week there and just had a wonderful time. I uh, got to realize a long-time desire of mine, which was to visit Charles Darwin's house, and that was lovely, to walk along his sand walk and think about the evolution of life in the same place that Charles Darwin did was treat. That sounds like a lot of fun. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that house was featured on Cosmos. Most likely, yes. I mean, they've done a wonderful job of restoring it to the conditions that it was, you know, probably pretty close to when the family lived there. The, the house spent a few decades being a girls' school in the early 20th century, and so it was, you know, necessarily changed a lot for that. A lot of buildings were built around on the property, but the historical foundation that's overseeing it now has returned a lot of the family belongings to the house and the second floor is made into a more traditional museum and I was just kind of blown away you know I've spent a long time reading about Charles Darwin uh, going there I knew that it felt like I was just going to visit my grandmother because uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I know him that well and I wasn't really prepared though for the Stalker how intimate the things were that they had you know I walked in and there's Darwin's beetle collection from when he was a little boy and uh, a lock of Emma Darwin's hair and it was just great for somebody that enjoys history <laughs> and uh, for somebody who's a, a fan of Charles Darwin and his work it was uh, great to go and be in that spot mm, so rooting around for some of Charles Darwin's finer details going through his drawers, trying on his underwear and, you know, really getting to know the guy. (laughs) You've actually been a victim of this yourself of late. What's going on? Because you're somebody who protects your identity online because you fight the good fight using science. But it's not something that you'd necessarily want to put yourself out there for. So what took place earlier? 
Oh, well, um, I don't advertise my identity online in large part because I'm, you know, I'm a college professor and if I went by my, my own identity on Twitter, I know that my students would go and look me up and my purpose of being on Twitter is to address this issue of religion and the, the harm that I think that it does in our society. And, you know, that's me as a person having those feelings, those, those views. But when I'm in the classroom, I'm, I'm a science teacher. My views about religion are irrelevant. There and I work very hard to try to maintain a you know a very even treatment of those topics if and when they come up and and students do come and talk to me about it because you know the issues that we discuss raise questions but I didn't want to you know have students feeling like they were coming into an environment where their religion was going to be challenged and I, I don't particularly challenge people's religion I challenge ink and sometimes that cuts across the grain of religion but we're pretty clear about that I know that students will go and do that you know there are already plenty of things rate my professor and that sort of service that students can go and look you up but when I'm doing my thing as a college professor I want my students to be um, interacting with me in that capacity not in my personal views about these subjects and um, well Kaimatai and I both have been uh, going back and forth with a, a particular creationist online on Twitter who um, a creationist who is uh, also a scientist might I add well it's not clear uh, <laughs> exactly he describes himself in lots of ways and he certainly describes himself as a scientist but his scientific epistemology is abysmal so I'm skeptical he may have a PhD but what he has described himself is doing is mathematical modeling of some sort and talks like a programmer and yeah. so I, I I don't know what it is but he he's a bit of a mess when it comes to uh, the actual application of science so anyway we've been going around and around with him over these issues whatever he is he's pretty arrogant about his views on things he uses the standard tactic of many creationists of trying to distort what science is in order to slip his religion into it so Kaimatai and I have both been hammering away at him for some time. And today I posted a picture that I just thought was funny. I was uh, driving to work and uh, the car in front of me had a Doberman Pinscher uh, with his head sticking out the sunroof. So I took a picture of that and posted it. And uh, I guess there was a, the sign for a business that I hadn't cropped out in there. And so this creationist decided to try to get to me and he, he went and did a search for that and found where the business was located and then started guessing what university I was at. And at that point, I decided that that was uh, inappropriate and that I'd had enough of him and I had blocked him. But um, then I went off to class and when I came back, he and Kaimatai had gone back and forth. I guess in all of that, he had, uh, he said that he did an image search. Um, I don't know yet if he got my identity right because he took those tweets down before I saw them thanks to Kaimatai. Hmm. But his intention was clear and I had made it very clear to him that I had no intention of sharing my identity with him. And, you know, it's obvious that if I don't have my identity up, I don't care to share it with people. So I felt like it showed pretty low character to do that kind of thing. Mm. See, we've been very busy here at the Herd Mentality Recording Dungeon. All of the tech support guys have been trying to locate your position and your identity, <laughs> and we've traced you to North Korea. Not doing perhaps as good a job as we'd set out to do, but uh, yeah, don't go and I find people online unless, unless of course, yeah. they're uh, religious people who sign up on Ashley Madison, which I find quite amusing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I certainly yeah. don't want creationists knowing who I am if they're going to come after me. And I don't think that this guy was had any real malintent. I wasn't afraid of him. It was just, you know, he's like, well, I'm going to find you and we'll we'll have a chat. We'll sit down and have a chat and I'll straighten you out. And then he starts telling me, you know, details about where he thinks I live. It's just not cool. 
Indeed not. Rachel, yeah. you've been rather quiet. Oh, I'm just sitting here listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't got too much of a cool story to tell, so I found them more interesting. Just me eating. Well, that's Listening why we're away. here. We're here to learn. So what have you got to teach us? What have you been digging up of late? Because you're a paleontologist. Well, I do. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a paleontologist since uh, you have to go get your doctorate, but I do dig under a paleontologist at a paleontology dig site. I'm a research assistant. I don't think we've found anything new species-wise, but I'm always finding stuff from pieces of that protohadros. Uh, dinosaur and crocodiliform pieces, like ancient pre-crocodile fossils. Yeah. And- oh, I, I really approve of that. Yes, well done. <laughs> Keep it up. Good work. <laughs> Whatever you do, however, don't find another species because that'll just be another two gaps. So best avoid it. Just yeah. stick with what we've got, please, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I, on our last show, I reminded myself how much I hate the fact that creationists are able to, I'd say they choose the A and the B. So they choose where they want to start and what they want to end up with. So they say, I want to see a worm turn into a cactus. They choose the points. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a, a creature that's from before or after. They just choose two points and they go, make it. I'm like, okay, if that thing existed, it would actually prove evolution wrong because a cactus cannot create a worm and a worm cannot create a cactus. They're like, what? I want a cactus worm. Show it to me and I'll believe in evolution. <sighs> but Creationism 101. It's about concocting tests that will ignore all the evidence we have for evolution. Yep. By, by yep. taking this, the strength of this research in cataloging all these different previous forms of life and focusing on the tiny, tiny little negative in between thousands and thousands and thousands of data points and going, ah, there isn't something right there. That's mm-hmm. the one. Yeah, and every time they say... Hey, where, where's that thing in the middle? There are usually specimens in these places that they want, but they have no idea they exist. They ask for, oh, I've never seen a, a lizard yeah, turn true. into a rabbit. I'm like, okay, so you want something reptilian, but also mammal-like. Have you ever seen the cynodos? Synapsids. <laughs> actually, yeah. there's, there's reptile-like mammals, mammal-like reptiles to the point where it's like an, it's like an iguana with hair. We can't even tell what it's more like. And they're like, well, no, that's fossils don't exist. Um, that's just an artist's representation of it. Like, of course it is. Apparently paleontology stopped in 1859 when The Origin of the Species was published. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has yep. happened since. But these were very <laughs> yeah. old creationist arguments. What what new and interesting creationist arguments are you guys coming up against? <laughs> 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 I would no, love it. I would love it. I'm, I try to. I try to give people the benefit of the doubt that if I talk to a religious person and they have a reason why they don't accept evolution. I'm always, like, hey, yeah, what is it? What is this evidence against it? I'm really interested. I want to. You know, I want to research it. I want to see why it doesn't make sense and how it proves God. That's really interesting. If it's real, oh, you don't. You are quoting. Uh, 1930s, um, which is actually a quote that was taken out of context from a book from 1889. Hmm. So, that's a no. No. I've I've been playing off and on with creationists, I think, since the the late 80s, and I don't think there's been a single new argument with the possible exception of irreducible complexity. Yeah, that's 
that's what I was about to mention. But that's there just are re, always re, new warmed up uh, paleism anyway, so it's not really. Yeah, they're usually coming up with new, confusing, randomly picked pieces of science that make them look as if it's super complex and this piece of information that science says this couldn't be true if evolution is true and no one understands what they mean because no one understands the science. And um, I actually got a really long 2,000-word paper from a friend, an apologist friend, as his 2,000-word proof of intelligent design. And he goes around <laughs> and he apparently reads this to people as proof Hi. of intelligent design. My name is so Kent Hovind. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I was expecting stupidity like that, but the paper, all of the arguments were new. With completely like, sciences, I had no idea. I'd never heard of any of the claims. And they all sounded like if they were true, evolution would be in trouble. So I'm like, what the hell is this? So I had to research every single one of them. And of course, they're all 100% incorrect. And then the one time I was like, you know what? I need you to explain if the reflexin, do you mean the reflexin protein or the reflexin gene that makes the protein? And which version? And the guy didn't even know what the reflexins were that he has in his paper. And so he just copied and pasted from an original answers in genesis paper ah. and i realized he had no idea what he was using as proof yes answers in genocide yes uh, <laughs> big, big fan of ken ham so guys for i'm fairly certain if there, if there was was a god then arg headquarters would be a smoking crater lies <laughs> and deceit by now <laughs> have another lightning bolt guys <laughs> don't waste all the wood <laughs> Each of you, your your own respective fields, in 25 words or less, why shouldn't we go to Ken Ham's Ark Park and see the Titan Ark? Rachel, go. Oh, wow. Because it is pretty much the representation of everything that is anti-science, and it represents the fact that they, I guess they value stifling human curiosity and honesty. It's, well, it's I'm ridiculous. curious about animatronic dinosaurs. This is your field of expertise. Why do they... <laughs> Why didn't people walk with dinosaurs? How do we know? How do we know that people didn't walk with dinosaurs? Mm -hmm. Because there is absolutely no evidence of it. And according to the geological history that we have found, as well as the evolutionary history, fossil and genetics, it couldn't have happened because humans have to come after the great apes which came after the small apes and then monkeys and, and lemurs. And gotcha. The very first primates are 60 million years old. Dinosaurs are a little bit earlier than that. It's mm. I, I think the other thing with the dinosaurs is we should find evidence of certain kinds that we don't. So we should find loads of DNA from dinosaurs because the DNA molecule lasts 6,000 years pretty easily. Mm -hmm. We don't. We should be finding very high levels of C14 isotopes because you know, it's only been 6,000 years, but we don't. Mm. So there's a whole lot of evidence we should find if they were recently around. So, Godfrey World, will you be taking your kids there instead of London next year? <laughs> <laughs> no, I will not. Uh, I would not give a single penny to Ken Ham and his dishonest organization. That's what we want to hear. It was less than 25 words, so everyone's a winner. So, Rachel, you're <laughs> currently doing some work with Atheists On Air. Tell us about that. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I joined maybe six or eight months ago or so, um, previously from Dogum Debate. And uh, Atheists On Air, I pretty much have scientific free reign with the other co-host, Professor Stephen. Um, we try not to talk about too much science, but it's 
is almost impossible for us. <laughs> uh, so it's a kind of it's a half call-in show, half uh, let's find really interesting topics within atheism, you know, as well as science. And so I, I usually at least try to have a segment that I um, will either expose incorrect arguments or talk about creationist stuff that I've found or just generally try to teach some evolution and paleontology and mm. Kai Matai, what are you working on at the moment? Is there anything that you would like to push people towards? Like your photography, you take some wonderful yep. photos. Yeah, photography, I guess. That's that's the nice side. Yeah, get out into the, the forests or the, the rivers or the, the sea and just just unwind and relax and watch, look, take pictures. Mm. There's no deadly animals in New Zealand, are there? No, but the environment does kill a fair few number of people, not just the extreme ones such as the, the earthquakes and the like. But um, New Zealand forest is, is very dense, very rugged. People get lost very easily. Fall down a hobbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Tanifa, dragons, orcs, whatever you want to call it. They're, they're all around the place. So, you know, you've got to be alert. New Zealand's a great evidence of evolution. Fantastic. Yeah. I think the, sort of the, the Kiwi is the death knell for anything that's got anything to do with creationism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's <laughs> like, you know, let's, let's talk about, you know, mock evolution. What use is half a wing? Half a wing is no use. Why did your God create a put an even smaller one in a Kiwi? To make them less delicious. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I've been told that um, since genetically we have shown that chickens have the fossil genes for teeth, and we've created it in the lab, um, that they used to have teeth, and after the fall of man and sin, they lost their teeth. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the great thing about the fall is, is that it makes the whole design argument completely specious because you say everything looks designed, and as soon as you point out something doesn't look designed, then you can go, but that's a fall, right? Yeah, Kiwi mm. lost its wings because of um, sin and homosexuality. Yeah, it's the one. It's too much. <laughs> I can't think of anything. It's just uh, there is nothing that terrifies me more than a chicken with teeth. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? <laughs> please, please. Can you come from Australia. Walking out. You should see the crocodiles we have up on the north. Oh, yeah, look, but, <laughs> but they can't fly. <laughs> Now, if we had a flying crocodile, that would be cause for concern. Walking outdoors and feeding the chickens and then being mauled to death by some sort of carnivorous, <laughs> beak-riddled, toothy-grinned chicken. Oh, my goodness. That's going to keep me up for weeks. Well, you could try cassowaries <laughs> to start with. Cassowaries are pretty homicidal. Uh, for, they okay, they for, hate people. For people try and kill you. <laughs> yes, they will. But for people who don't know what a cassowary is, Kaimato, de describe it. It's a giant chicken with a blue head, um, flightless <laughs> bird related to ostriches, emus, kiwis and the like. And it's got this wonderful claw on its toes. And its mission in life seems to be to, to basically try and find people to disembowel. It really hates people. Really, really hates people. So, oh, it's, it's a wonderful animal. In fact, the um, people in Papua New Guinea tried to farm it once. Mm -hmm. So people could farm ostriches. People could farm emus. Let's try and farm cassowaries. And then it just turned into a big sort of Fifty Shades of O negative arrangement, presumably. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, the two problems, yeah. You put some cassowaries together and they try and kill each other because they're homicidal. And if you go anywhere near them, they try and disembowel you. And, and people really like their intestines inside their abdominal wall. So. It'd be nice. I'm getting married up in cassowary territory later this year, so... Oh, cool. Well, maybe not now. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. <laughs> Spiders will get them first. Uh, do you, the lady friend, take uh, these 16 feet of intestine? <laughs> and one final question. I put this to Godfrey World and Kaimatai before the show, not you, Rachel, because you were too busy trying to work out which of the yeah. 16 microphones to use. 
if the human eye was to be compared to a charged coupled device, so a CCD from, say, a phone or a digital camera, how many megapixels do you think it would be? You're a biologist, you have a history in this. Shoot. Oh, um, well, also as the photographer, maybe I go first. Mm. Looking at um, cameras now that run up to 40 megapixels, I'd put the human eye probably in order of magnitude greater than that because we have a far better dynamic range. We can see in far more colours, far more range through light and dark. So that's why photographers have to do the HDR pictures because the camera doesn't catch capture the same detail. But a CCD can pick up something beyond what the human eye can see, and that's infrared. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's still still not seeing that. That this all you're doing there is you're moving the the range over a bit. The, the range that you're looking at is still fairly fixed. The other neat thing that we can do is when we look, we can see the whole scene in focus, whereas CCDs only can have a very narrow plane in focus depending on on the lens. It's not capable of those kinds of adjustments the human eye can make. Probably an order of magnitude greater. Okie doke, so higher than 40 I'm not, megapixels. Maybe I'm not sure I agree with that, actually, uh, mm. Kai Matai. Um, <laughs> you can, you can. Well, that's fine. That's my, my reasoning. Finally, an well, argument. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, he asked about megapixels, and uh, dynamic range isn't megapixels. In terms of megapixels, it's very difficult to compare because the eye just does not work at all like a CCD. You know, a CCD has rows and columns of photosensors uh, arranged in a very regular pattern evenly over a rectangular space, and the, the human retina is not organized like that at all. It has a far greater density of photoreceptors in the, in the central area of vision and those color um, sensitive cones primarily in a region called the fovea that's exactly what you know when you look at something that's what you're looking at and that region is pretty high resolution certainly but you know anything that you detect outside of that region in your more peripheral vision is is much lower resolution a ccd receives light sort of linearly across its surface and the retina doesn't. The retina has about 130 million cells in it. You know, if each one of those represented a pixel, then you couldn't get beyond about 130 million, but that's not how it works. Uh, the individual cells, the rods and cones, they're grouped. So, you know, rods, uh, maybe up to 100 rods will all report to one so-called ganglion cell that then reports on to the central nervous system. Uh, but that means that it's a fairly low resolution that increases the light sensitivity because any photon that hits any of those hundred rods will trigger the ganglion cell, but it kind of reduces the resolution of the system. Cones are usually only two or three that report to one ganglion cell, so you get a little bit higher resolution there and much less light sensitivity. That's why we don't see uh, in color in low light conditions. So if you ask this question before, and I, they are not comparable, I'm not sure how you could um, compare them. But for that central region of our vision that's very high resolution, if you measure the resolution that we get, the ability to discern the details in an image, I think it's about roughly comparable to an 8 megapixel camera. There we go. That makes me happy. I like that. I'm going to go and listen back to that half a dozen times. And well, that, that kicked ass. Yeah, it is, it is ass. a guess. I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm going to go with 100% word for word what he said because I knew all that. <laughs> My input would be that the eye, though it 
can intake and it can focus um, and it has, you know, however many rods and cones, all that aside, when it comes to the processing the information from the eye into the brain and the way that the brain processes. So when we see the image in our head versus what the eye is actually receiving versus what a camera actually receives and processes, the percent that is accurate at the end of the day, um, the camera kind of kicks our ass because the brain varies from individual to individual, as well as based on what emotions you're feeling at the time, how well your memory is processing, it's very the light good at, conditions. Uh, it's dis- the, disregarding um, information as well. So part of the, oh yeah, we, the processing we takes see, place in the eye behind it. We see what we want to see, and our brain can change the colors and the shapes, change what we remember seeing. Um, it changes focuses. Our peripherals distorted. We see better motion than we do color and and shape um, in our peripherals. So I'd say that for detail and accuracy, um, most cameras probably back into the 1960s can kick our ass when it comes to actually giving you an accurate representation of what um, the image is. Mm -hmm. Our brain will tell us what we want to know. Which explains creationism. But if you were to hazard a number, go. Holy crap. I don't know. (laughs) I know. It's fundamentally not a fair comparison because uh, yes. uh, you know our eye just works in a totally different way. Rachel raises some really good points. We move our eye continuously, and a lot of the information that we get about resolution and all of that comes from comparing images over time. And a CCD camera doesn't do that. It records an image and then another one and then another one. It doesn't integrate that information over time in the same way that the human eye does. So it simply is not a fair comparison at all. Well, that's interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, we might wrap it up there. We Unfortunately, we've lost Godfrey World. I'll say goodbye on his behalf. And Kai Matai, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you for having me. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for hiring me. I had fun. Evolution's awesome. Yes, it is. Go and evolve, people. <laughs> Nailed it. Put that on a bumper sticker. Herd mentalists, hear me! Questionable Adam here contacting you from the year 2075. I'm currently imprisoned for forcing my beliefs on a theist. Kim Davis took me to court in the year 2032 when I refused to sign her 17th marriage certificate on the grounds that I believed I was simply exhausted from signing the previous ones. Back then, the income from the podcast was insufficient for me to make bail. But you can help by simply going to patreon.com slash herdmentality. You can pledge as little as a dollar per episode and help me avoid jail time, just as Phil, Hugh, Cliff and Jeff did recently. These wonderful herd mentalists can look forward to the perks detailed on the Patreon site, such as a silly hand-drawn cow. It's also possible to make a one-off donation to the show using PayPal at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and clicking the support tab. A special thanks to George and Duncan for your contributions. I'd like to thank, as well, Matthew for buying me a beer at the Neil deGrasse Tyson event in Sydney, as well as his contribution towards a Kiva loan. And and speaking of Kiva.org, 10% of the proceeds from the show went to helping support women in developing countries. Lucia in Nicaragua received support to pay for her English course and buy a computer as well as Kelly in Nicaragua to pay for postgraduate studies in international business. And the Herd Mentality Lending Team on Kiva.org has now loaned out over $5,500. We're doing good things. Now just imagine all of the good I could have achieved by now had we been able to change the past. Now I must go. 
The pillow in this prison cell isn't going to bite itself. Ta-ta! So welcome back to the show, Godfrey World. After you disconnected from our previous chat and the other two had to run away. Hello. Hi, how are you? Sorry about that uh, technical problem. That's all right. We actually dropped out for a week. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, Really? Yeah. I've been sitting here wondering where <laughs> we were. The whole time. Can't wait to get back on the show. So what we were discussing that got edited out of the previous conversation was that there were different types of pupils. And I just wanted to finish that thought and splice it into the end of the show. So there was an article, I think, that you put on Twitter about how different types of animals perceive the world around them. Yeah, that's right. There was a recent news link to a a journal article that came out, mm, I think, two or three weeks ago about the shape of pupils. And this is something I've always been interested in. You know, I studied primate diversity uh, primarily, and there certainly is a lot of diversity in the structure of the eyes in primates from the colors they perceive to the shapes and sizes of their eyes. But if you look more broadly, um, of course, everybody's noticed that there's these oddly shaped pupils in some organisms. Uh, Grazing animals are frequently will have a sort of a horizontal pupil, something like a goat or a horse. Some animals, though, have a a vertical slit or, you know, other very oddly shaped uh, pupils. And so this paper was basically just doing a correlation analysis, studying what's the relationship between what the animal does and what the shape of their pupil is. It's very interesting. I encourage people to go look at it. But one of the things that I picked up on in there was that it mentioned that in those animals that have a horizontal pupil, the, the pupil is thought to in some way augment the perception of things along a horizon line. So, you know, a grazing animal would have a bunch of sky above, which largely they wouldn't have to worry too much about what was coming from there. Where predators would likely be coming from would be from the horizon. So having a pupil that emphasizes that would be useful. But I had always wondered, actually, uh, just idly, because I, we own a horse. Uh, my daughter rides horse and has done for, for years. And looking at them and thinking about this, I, I hadn't done the study, but I had myself hypothesized that the pupil shape like that might be related to you know, scanning the horizon. And uh, certainly uh, prey items also, prey species also, um, you know, they need a, a very broad field of view. That's why the eyes are on the side of the head. So unlike us, uh, where the eyes face forward and, you know, give us a stereoscopic view of the things in front of us, something like a horse can see much a much wider field of view uh, with the, the eyes on the side of the head. But you watch a horse and they, of course, raise their head up and down as they're grazing and and looking around and and I had always thought kind of would make sense if the pupil would actually pivot in in order to keep it roughly horizontal whatever the head position in the position of the of a horse's head when it's up versus down it's it turns I don't know if it's 90 degrees or how much but it's quite a lot and uh how much that would really make a horizontal pupil into a vertical pupil perhaps so I'd always kind of idly thought, well, maybe the maybe the eyeball rotates in there, but I hadn't never done anything about it. This article mentioned that and suggested that it did happen, so that motivated me, and I actually went and I had taken a lot of pictures of our horse. I had some from an upright position and some with its head down, and I was able to zoom in and look at the pupil, and I drew some lines on there and did some rough eyeballing, so to speak, and sure enough, the pupil stays not perfectly horizontal. It actually has a slight 
uh, in our horse, uh, it's at a, about a 12 degree angle to the horizontal, but it's at a 12 degree angle no matter what the horse's head position is. And so the eye rotates in its socket, uh, in order to keep the pupil horizontal, which is very interesting. I just think that's cool. Wow. So you're going to be publishing this study? No, no, not from one picture. <laughs> and I, I think these guys already beat me to it. I, I don't know if they have actual data in there about that. I haven't read their paper very thoroughly, but, uh, it might be actually interesting to do, uh, you know, you'd need a broader study to to do that. And it's of minor interest, but it's, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting and nice to be able to show that it happened on my own horse. Thank you very much for coming back on and finishing that thought. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks for letting me. No problem. Take care. You too. Here's a tweet by Chris Krzmenski. I am religion, and when my logical centrifuge hits maximum velocity... The potency of my potion of faith concentrates into venom. Follow Chris at C.E.K. Books and grab his latest work, All These Quiet Places, a collaboration with Jen August about domestic violence on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Ladies and gentlemen, hang on. What? Who's this? Engage Dr. Dave Hawks. It's Dr. Dave Hawks and he's engaged. How are you, sir? Um... I'm good. I am married. Um, I just want to clarify that. <laughs> so you have been busy writing some papers. Yes. Uh, I've got a few papers out this year, but we're actually going to be talking about one that I wrote with one of your previous guests. Ooh, who might that be? Uh, Joe Benamou. Ah, yes. The lovely Joe Benamou. Yes. And uh, it was also a couple of the other authors were Tom Sidwell and Rihanna Miles, who are both involved in Stop the AVN, and someone who your Australian listeners particularly will be familiar with, which is Dr. Rachel Dunlop. Ah, Dr. Rachie. Everyone's involved in this. She is. Everyone is, yes. It's a <laughs> it's a cast of cast of thousands. Yeah, get my name on there. I'd like some credibility. Um, it's going to take a fair bit more than that, dude. <laughs> so, vaccinations. Turns out they're a bad thing, yeah? Um, yes. If you're a disease, they're, they're horrendous. <laughs> but that's not what you set out to... No. So, to give you a bit of background in this paper, which is in the Journal of Autoimmunity, which is quite a a well-respected journal for an impact factor of seven for those playing along at home. Uh, And the paper was a systematic review called Revisiting Adverse Reactions to Vaccines, a Critical Appraisal of Autoimmune Syndrome Induced by Adjuvants, which has the rather striking acronym of ASIA. (laughs) So, essentially what happened was in February 2011, it was proposed that vaccinations can cause autoimmune diseases and a whole variety of autoimmune diseases. And there's been a lot of papers in the sort of the four years since then. And so we well, want to on, actually just, look- just really quickly pull back there for the other people playing along at home. An autoimmune disease is something where the body begins to attack itself. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It covers all sorts of conditions that can be classified as, as autoimmune. And I'm certainly not going to I, the, the reason I had people like Tom and Rachel on was because they're obviously more in tune with autoimmune diseases than I am. But there's a whole variety of them. Probably the most well-known strictly autoimmune disease is lupus. That's every episode of House. I'm all across lupus. I know how that works. <laughs> it's also every episode of medicine in general. It's uh, I think it's known as the Great Pretender. Yes. And that sort of that kind of sums up a lot of immune dis- autoimmune diseases because exactly <laughs> and vaccine experts. Hmm. <laughs> Or anti-vax experts. My apologies. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I knew there was something wrong, but I couldn't tell what. Um, so I guess the thing is, with autoimmune diseases, there's some that are really clearly defined, but a lot of them, it's it's unclear of exactly 
what's happening with them and, you know, what causes them. So it's the sort of thing that can actually be readily hijacked by people with an axe to grind because we don't understand them. I mean, if we're looking at sort of blocked arteries, we have a pretty good idea of exactly what causes them. You know, there's there's the fine tuning we're still working out, but, you know, the basic premise is fine, whereas autoimmune diseases is a bit of a a black box. It's something where we're really increasing our knowledge uh, at a great rate at the moment, but there's still a long way to go. Hmm. Let me give you a real-world example. I'll get an on-air consult here. I have... I suspect something called alopecia, which is where the skin cells begin to attack the hair follicles, the little factories that create dye, so the the melanin in the keratin, the the keratin being the hair and the melanin is the the dye. Now, could this possibly be caused by the vaccine that gives you autism? Um, I think what you're actually describing is getting grey hair and it's caused by age. (laughs) Um, but no, still no vaccine for that, by the way. Um, there is, there's, if you actually don't vaccine, your chances of uh, suffering from old age are are greatly (laughs) reduced. So where did the paper go with all of this? I guess to give some background and the reason we actually took on this particular topic, which is a bit outside of of certainly my normal malaria. I mean, I'm interested in vaccination, so that was the trigger, but there's been a whole variety of papers. So there's, I, I think, by some counts, we've, we've got as many as 80 papers have been published on four years on this particular topic. And what we found was that they were really closely associated with one of the, the people that proposed the study, a, a professor in Israel. He's very experienced, you know, highly regarded uh, expert on autoimmune. And we found that the majority, the far majority, I mean, our first 50 papers, we found pretty much over 90% were associated with him in some way. So either he was a co-author, it was by somebody who he'd previously authored a paper with, and by previously I mean within the last five years, or they were published in a journal on which he was on the editorial board or the editor-in-chief or the editor of a special edition. So it was something that was a little bit weird. In itself, that's not that strange because obviously if there's an expert in the field, they have their lots of fingers in lots of pies, but he is also a paid witness in vaccine court cases on the side of people claiming vaccine injury. Ah, right. There's the motivator. Possibly. And the reason I found out about him is that he has started to work with another person called, uh, and I will mix up the pronunciation, is Tamel Yenovic, who is a PhD. Uh, She has a PhD. She works at the University of British Columbia and has her positions been paid for by an anti-vaccination organisation. So I think they've donated to her area in the university $950,000 in recent years and they have a very strict sort of anti-vaccine focus and so she's been involved in a lot of these sort of she churns out a lot of editorials and a lot of sort of pieces like that with anti-vaccine and was a co-author with Judy Weilerman on uh, the paper yes. that triggered go back through the I think it was the first episode you're on Dave or yes episode number five was my uh, essentially my rebuttal to that paper hmm. so it's a little bit convoluted but you sort of see why we who were involved in stop the AVM were quite interested in this so we went through and we looked at all the papers so this was Joe Benamu is a, a clinical trials expert and so she was doing a lot of this stuff and we went through and we found that of those sort of more than 80 papers we found that there was I think just getting the numbers right there was a little over 20 were actually research papers and so you're looking at over 50 of those 80 papers were opinion pieces in one way or another (laughs) so that's that's what we looked at and so they they divided these papers into either animal studies case studies or just general human studies i guess before i go any further i'll just explain what you need to actually be classified with asia syndrome because 
I think that I can actually, uh, I'm not a medical doctor, but I reckon I can diagnose you with, with this, Adam. Excellent. So <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, a, there's, there's four major criteria and four minor criteria. And as long as you've got two major or one major and two minor, generally that's what mo- most of the papers agree is uh, qualifies you for a, uh, a diagnosis of Asia. So the first criteria is exposure to external stimuli, which means infection, vaccine, silicon, adjuvant prior to symptoms. So have you been sick or had a vaccine at any point? You know, thinking back over 33 years, yeah, once or twice. Now, obviously, we can't look over 33 years because that's that's stupid. That's ri- ridiculous. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the papers that I looked at, they did actually narrow down the time frame. So I think realistically, the largest time frame any of them gave was 15 years mm-hmm. between having a vaccine and having their first symptom. Mm-hmm. In itself, that sort of creates a few little problems. So if you've had a vaccine in your adult life, you would classify with that first major criteria. So congratulations, we're halfway there. <laughs> Fantastic. So it just feels so good to be involved. Yeah, well, this is a great thing. Everyone can be involved in this criteria. The second one is the appearance of typical clinical manifestations. So they can things like arthritis, chronic fatigue, which, you know, could be a thing. But then they go down to things like memory loss and dry mouth. <laughs> So if you've had I've a, got both of those just right now. Yeah, so we can argue that beer 24 hours later can cause autoimmune disease. Is that what you're trying to say? Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten who you are. <laughs> yeah, so essentially if you've had a vaccine in, or an infection any time in the last 15 years and you've suffered from any number of a range of symptoms, including dry mouth, you have satisfied <laughs> the two criteria, two major criteria, and you're all good. So... Cherry picking much? Yeah, I mean, I can go through all the other bits and pieces, but what it comes down to is that our conclusions for all this were that we can't say that this doesn't occur. You know, you can never rule anything out. But our conclusion was that if you do want to sort of argue that it is actually occurring, you just need to tweak it just a little bit. You include some sort of time limit. So if if someone has a vaccine and then they get their first symptoms within, say, six weeks or eight weeks, Mm -hmm. that's within a regional time frame. And there's there's a bit of history sort of between two weeks and two months post-vaccination, you'd sort of say was in the to the first symptoms. You could say is biologically feasible. Over 15 years, wouldn't almost all of the cells in your body have replaced themselves twice? Quite possibly. Hmm. Just a thought. And the other thing is just to have a mechanism by which this occurs. So at the moment, there's nothing other than, oh, vaccines can induce immunity, therefore they can induce immune function, and therefore autoimmune diseases are misregulation of immune function. So essentially, that's kind of their thought process at the moment, and they've not really gone anywhere beyond essentially that level of detail. So if you, I will state, as I state every time, vaccine side effects do occur. Mm -hmm. Like, The most common one is a red arm or a sore arm at the site of injection. And the thing is, that doesn't appear. If you suddenly got a sore arm that was red three months after your vaccination, you probably wouldn't attribute to a vaccine, would you? I wouldn't. No. No. Whereas if you got one within sort of a week after your vaccination, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I I can see that there's a causation and there's an effect and and something like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's all, all you really need to do. But the problem is if you actually apply that criteria by three months, so I'll forget all the animal studies because they're all incredibly flawed. So the doses that they were giving of the vaccine, most of them were actually looking at the aluminium in the vaccine. This is, this is the thing that they seem to think is the cause of this because the aluminium induces the immune system. Right. So with one of the animal studies, they were giving roughly the equivalent of 289 vaccine doses of aluminium. Um, <laughs> Per animal. That's five times the average daily intake, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little bit more than that. Um, (laughs) 
Another one was 116, and then the one with the least was 46. The other four papers didn't even tell you how much. And they're all using these very specific genetic models of animals that were designed to get lupus. We, we kind of crossed off those, whereas most <laughs> of the other ones we looked at... Well, I, just, I'm just thinking about those poor animals. At the end of the study, did they sort of melt the animal down and turn it into a window frame? For that amount of al- aluminium... You wouldn't want to let it go to waste. Mice are quite small. Aluminium is an antacid. Draw your conclusion. Maybe you just swallow the animal for, uh, you know, a bit of gastric reflux. (laughs) Dave Hawkes, recycler extraordinaire. So these are the human case studies. So as I said, they're talking about aluminium. They're also talking about silicon for silicon breast implants. And they were saying that this can induce the immune system. But pretty much every case they highlighted seems to be that you've got a rupture of the, uh, the breast implant. So that's That's a whole variety of other things, and that's essentially toxicity. So the idea of between inducing an immune response and toxicity is dose. So you're not Mm -hmm. actually looking at an intact breast implant where there's just a tiny amount of silicon that's inducing an immune effect. It's actually you've got a rupture. But the time for exposure, I'll I'll nick down Mm. very quickly. Is There's a few undefined. One's within an hour, and that, that was interesting. But even if it is true, that's one hour, that's reasonable. The other ones were 11 years, three years, five years, up to three months, undefined, unknown, one year, three years. So you're looking at no real temporal association with the majority of the cases. And the thing is, if you do find one case where something did occur within an hour of vaccination, definitely warrants um, mm-hmm. more investigation. HPV vaccine alone has been given 200 million times. So if you give anything a couple of billion times a year over a decade, something's going to happen an hour after it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're looking at for the case studies. That's that's the time frames you're looking at. I guess the whole point about this paper and about this article is that there are questions about the motivations of some of the people publishing these articles and trying to get this into literature. And when you've got anti-vaxxers like Julie Weilerman, who's just published one paper, it's it's not really that much concern. But when you have people like Professor Schoenfeld, who does have a lot of power but is also financially conflicted, you know, has a forum to present their particular view, it can be misleading. He's perhaps the next Andrew Wakefield. I don't think it's that. From what we've sort of seen, none of the stuff that I've really looked at is false. You know, like with the animal studies, they say, yes, we've given aluminium in vaccines to animals and we've seen, we think we've seen lupus occurring. And it's like, that's completely true. But the dosage you're using are, are not realistic and the animals you're using get lupus anyway so it's it's not fraud i will state that clearly it's not fraud but it's just the misleading the way that it's presented yeah it it can certainly be considered misleading Mm. and with this paper by the way just uh because you know you've been trying to get hold of me for this interview for a couple of weeks but the paper got cited this morning in a nice reputable journal and so again i hold myself to the same criteria as anyone else and if my papers are cited by others, as then that's a recommendation that what we're saying is actually valid within the scientific environment. It's an author I don't know. The citation is quite reasonable, talking about exactly what the paper says. So, yeah, we're, we're quite happy with that. And the other thing is it's only a few months on. You often don't expect something to be cited for a year because of the way that publication schedules work. So, mm. yeah, it's a, a nice start to my day this morning. Oh, fantastic. Well, well done, Dave. And if people want to have a read of your paper... Where would they be able to get their hands on it? If you contact me through at Mr. Hawkes, M-R-H-A-W-K-E-S, on Twitter, I can direct you to it. It's not, unfortunately, it's not an open access 
paper, it would cost us several thousand dollars to do that. And unfortunately, we don't have any financial backing, but I'm more than happy to, if, if someone's interested, to send it through to them. Fantastic. Dave, thank you very much. I don't have an outro sting for you, so you'll have to disengage yourself. Cheers. Cheers.